are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Just a note before the podcast of the sermon begins, the liturgy which included this sermon was actually offered from my home on the second Sunday in Christmastide, January 2nd, 2022. I was awaiting the third of my COVID test results in my take-home COVID package. And I am grateful to say that three days in a row it has come back negative. So hopefully by next Sunday we'll be back in the church, very limited numbers, but it'll be in that more familiar setting. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So when St. Ben's first started, we were at St. Albans Church, which was a parish in the South Osborne Village neighborhood. And there was just a little group of us. There was 25, 30, 35 people. And so I started this pattern of sitting down while I preached, which just felt comfortable with a small group, and I was a little bit raised. And then somebody made the observation somebody not from our gang, but somebody who had come visiting from another context, made the observation, you know, Jamie, it's the prerogative of bishops to preach while they're seated. Huh. Well, tonight I'm going to preach seated. Apologies to Bishop Jeff. Now, here we are on the second Sunday of Christmastide. The lectionary has offered us two readings which can only be imagined as big picture readings. First up, we had a reading from the book of Ephesians, which included these words, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless according to his love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So from before the foundation of the world, this epistle insists, we, we have been chosen, adopted, given new identities, and a new home. Step back from that assertion for a moment, and it's hard not to be in awe. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, can you get any more big picture than that? Well, maybe. Consider these words from the prologue, from the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. The Word was with God, John says, and in fact was God. And who exactly is this Word, Logos in Greek? John makes that more than a little clear as he proceeds landing on this most remarkable of phrases. The Word became flesh and lived among us, 
or as Eugene Peterson rendered it in his translation, the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> but you see, that seems so remote from what we're facing right now, these days. The word became flesh and blood and moved into a neighborhood filled with masked people who sanitize their hands every time they walk into a grocery store, stand in long lines to get a COVID test, watch as all manner of things get canceled, face a Christmas in which many of us couldn't gather with family because someone was positive or waiting for a test or whatever. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world, named as the beloved sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. And yet the kids' winter activities have been placed on hold. Visits to an aging parent may not be possible if they live in a personal care home or an assisted living facility. Or in my case, I feel sick, so here I am, three days sticking a thing up my nose three times. Every time we turn on the news, there are even more troubling numbers of positive infections. Now we're being told that maybe we shouldn't even go for a test. If we can ride things out at home, you'll be fine. Just, just be sick at home. The other day, I was listening to the news and they talked about the owners of The Grove, which is on Stafford, in the Amsterdam Tea Room, which is just around the block from me here. Two solid, really good local restaurant options. They both announced that they had opted to close because they had such high infection rates in their staff. And in speaking to the fellow from the Amsterdam Tea Room, he wondered why the heck the province isn't taking steps to close down all the restaurants to stave off this variance incredible spread. So given all that, what do you do with the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood? Or God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Those writers must be naive, right? out of touch, clearly unaware of the kind of mess that we're in now. It must have been a kind of a genteel world of sorts, but no, wrong. The usual date for the setting of the writing of Ephesians is somewhere between 65 and 80 A.D., while for the Gospel according to John, it's generally agreed that it landed in its final finished form, the one that we have, by about 90 AD, with earlier versions produced maybe a decade earlier. To think that either writer didn't have any experience of something akin to our current struggles is simply wrong. For instance... Paul writes several times about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. It figures quite prominently in the book of Acts and in his epistles. 
was in part fueled by a need to deliver aid from the outlying Gentile churches to a famine-starved church in Jerusalem. Famine-starved. Not only that, but in a very recent book by Rosemary Margaret Luff, a book titled The Impact of Jesus in First Century Palestine, she covers the evidence generated by an analysis of human bones from Palestinian tombs, in particular the ones relating to the urban sites of Jerusalem and Jericho, uncovering what she calls, quote, a high level of sub-adult deaths, especially of infants, lots of children and infants. In the abstract for the book, the following is summarized. Quote, Those socially and economically advantaged were equally at risk with those well-off when faced with an aggressive and persistent pathogen. Sound familiar? No class distinctions with this pathogen. As evidenced by the Akadelma tombs containing the remains of the wealthy, in one tomb, both leprosy and tuberculosis were identified in a high-class man, possibly a priest. While malaria is described by Josephus with reference to Hasmonium king in the first century BCE, in other words, this ain't new. Think of all the times in the Gospels where Jesus encounters and heals leprosy, which was brutal, life-condemning kind of a condition. Think of when he encounters deathly ill people, including deathly ill children. And even Peter's own mother, who's struck with some disease that threatens to take her life, it is shot through the Gospels. And then spin ahead. Spin ahead to the years 165, to 180, so a ways after Jesus has died, but still within that early church range. The empire, the dominant power, the power that held everything, was hit with a plague, most likely smallpox, measles, or both. The death toll of that plague is now estimated at 5 to 10 million people, accounting for between 25 and 33 percent of the Roman population. That is enormous. Number sort of staggers. But what was even more staggering was the response of the Christians, who were, you remember, at this point still not legal. We didn't become legal until the Edict of Milan in 312. So in those 150s, 60s, we were an illegal movement. Yet rather than fleeing the cities to seek refuge in the hills, like the most affluent of Romans did, the Christians stayed put. In fact, they even moved back into cities if they lived outside of them. They stayed and they nursed and cared for those who'd fallen ill. They provided water and food and the very basics of care. 
not that the Christians were magically immune to catching the plague and dying. In fact, many died. But their acts of care and kindness spread this faith like wildfire. The ancient Christian writer Tertullian, who lived right through the heart of that plague, famously wrote, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. And notably, those ancient Christians didn't just care for one another, but they provided care for all of their neighbors, regardless of their religious stripe. That's why this faith grew. So this is not the first time the church has faced a pandemic, as even the quickest of online searches will show. In the past century, the 20th century, the world faced what was called the Spanish flu, probably mislabeled, not from Spain, but the Spanish flu, all the same. It killed a minimum of 25 million people in a context in which the world was somewhere around 2 billion people compared to the almost 8 billion of today. Think through the math on that. Later in that same century, the polio outbreaks here in North America, and here in Winnipeg particularly, killed or crippled people at a ruthless rate until a vaccine was developed. And it was, at least in this part of the world, effectively stamped out. But during its rage, it was awful. So what do we think of this as a people of faith? Well, I'll tell you a story. When I was first ordained, uh, the priest under whose direction I was working here in Winnipeg, David Pate at uh, St. Paul's Fort Gary, took me around to all of the hospitals to introduce me to where the visiting areas were, where the chapel was, to meet people, all those sorts of things. And he took me to Riverview, which was then called the Municipals. The King George, the Prince Edward, the Queen Elizabeth were the three hospitals. The King George, this was 1987, still had a good number of polio survivors in it. And we went up and we met a priest. His name was Morris Goodman. He had been struck in one of the waves of the polio pandemic in the 19, late 1950s, shortly after he was ordained. And he breathed like, and then he would talk for a little bit, and then he would breathe again. That's 1987. He'd been doing that since the late 50s. And he prayed for me days before my ordination. It was profoundly moving. But we need to know that the world is a broken and sometimes ruthless place. Yet, would we be best to just escape into the sweet by and by of death? Or do I do my best to protect me and my family 
while we see the, this all through. Or maybe ignore the best evidence, don a mask, carry on as before, confident that we won't be, we can't be critically ill from this, not me. Or maybe imagine that if we're faithful enough, God will protect us. In different ways, of course, various people have chosen each of these paths in the name of Jesus, but I'd largely bear to differ. I believe that one of the things that the advance of medical science and research reflects is the best that we have to this point in keeping people safe from the worst that's thrown at us. And it is not categorically not thrown at us by God any more than smallpox was thrown at the world by God in the 160s or polio in the 1940s and 50s. The world is let to have a life of its own by our God and things like viruses do mutate for the sake of their own survival and spread. The cause is not the question that should interest us. Rather, it is the response. Just as the Christian response to leprosy, tuberculosis, hunger, loneliness, polio, and the Spanish flu were what mattered. If we dare to hunker down when that's the best course, resorting to these online platforms for Sunday Eucharist, being careful to respect one another, that's a starting point. If we do what we can to support our nurses and doctors and other caregivers, perhaps being especially grateful for those who do work as an extension of their Christian faith, that's a really great second step. If we do all we can to love and care for one another, whether that might be through phone calls, email, online prayer, Zoom format for gatherings like this, delivered meals, that can be important, quick check-ins, or whatever else we might be able to imagine would be a source of strength for a brother or sister, that's another step. It is step by step, and not narrowly for the sake of keeping me safe, but for the sake of all of you and all of those whom you relate to, all of us. For now, for right now, it is our path. Because we affirm, we must affirm, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, becoming flesh and bone for us and moving into our neighborhood. And our neighborhood in that first century had the same perils as the neighborhood in the 21st. He is one of us, was, is, and always will be. That's at the heart of our belief, and we need then to extend who and what we are from there.
In that, there is both challenge and the reception of the great good Christmas news indeed. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.